0: They've tried to personalize the target of their evangelistic efforts by affectionately giving him the nickname Unchurched Harry. The descriptions of Harry, of course, could just as well depict his female counterpart, Unchurched Mary. So who is Mary? And who is Harry? Well, Harry's the science teacher who thinks that all religions for intellectual weaklings. Mary's the kind-hearted neighbor perfectly happy without God in her life. Harry may be the supervisor who only uses Jesus' name as a swear word. Mary could be the young entrepreneur who is so busy dealing with success that she doesn't have time for spiritual matters. Or she may be the businesswoman who is afraid Christianity might cramp the way she does her business. Harry could be the lawyer who spends his Sunday mornings playing golf and he chafes at the idea that he should somehow you know, feel guilty about it. Or he could be the government bureaucrat who's convinced that Christianity is at best boring and irrelevant. Although this book is written from a man's perspective, I want you to know up front that almost all of the advice will be useful for bringing the gospel to women as well as men. So remember that when we discuss unchurched Harry, I mean Mary as well. And maybe you know someone who fits this description of being an unchurched Harry or Mary. Could be a colleague, or it could be a neighbor. Could be a friend, or it could even be a spouse who's indifferent or skeptical toward Christianity. And you desperately want God to use you to bring the gospel to these people, but you're not sure what to do. You don't know how to go about doing it. Could even be that you're entering the ministry and you're anxious to penetrate your community with the message of Christ. But when you think about it, Deep down, you're afraid that you might scare off more people than you reach. Part of your hesitation might stem from your own uncertainties about what unchurched Harry and Mary are really like. Do you understand them well enough to know how to lovingly and tactfully and powerfully bring them the gospel? Well, my hope is that this tape can help advance your understanding of unchurched people so that your personal evangelistic efforts and the group efforts of your church might become more effective. My guess is that you're listening to this tape because you have a hunger to see your friends and relatives adopted into God's family. In fact, you'd really like to see your entire community impacted by the gospel. And you know what? We share the same goal. so let's team up. I'll do my part by tapping into my personal experiences and what I've learned in leading irreligious people to Christ, and you do your part by taking what you think might be helpful, discarding the rest, and then following God's leadings on your next adventure in personal evangelism. My experience of being radically rescued from an aimless life of atheism and all those years that I spent living apart from God, that all left an indelible imprint on who I am. And it's still fresh enough in my mind to help me empathize with what's aching inside unchurched people. And friends, it's my hope that what I've experienced during those turbulent years as unchurched Harry will help you sharpen your own evangelistic edge in reaching your unchurched friends. For most of my adult life, I consider myself an atheist. Now, I'll admit up front that I hadn't analyzed the evidence for or against the existence of God. I thought that the concept of an almighty deity was absurd on the surface, so why spend the time checking it out? Even as a youngster, I was the skeptical sort. I I used to read the Chicago Tribune every morning, the Chicago Daily News every night, because they were aggressive and tough-minded newspapers, and I liked journalism. Those papers seemed to subscribe to the old axiom that newspapers exist to comfort the afflicted, and afflict the comfortable. I wanted that to be my motto, too. So I started a neighborhood newspaper when I was about 12 years of age. It was called the Arlington Bulletin. I produced a five-page newspaper every week for two years. Stanton Cook, the production manager of the Chicago Tribune, came over to see my newsroom one day in the basement of our house. Later, when a Tribune reporter interviewed me for an article, I was able to articulate a firm vision of what I wanted for my future. I wanted to get a degree from the University of Missouri's journalism program and then launch a career in Chicago, one of the most tumultuous newspaper towns in the country. When I was a child, my parents encouraged me to believe in God, and they'd bring me to church on a regular basis, but frankly, I hated it. What I recall most from Sunday school was the mind-numbing boredom of it all. I vaguely remember a jumble of stories I just couldn't relate to. And when i go to the adult services, that was worse. The 20-minute sermon seemed interminable. All the kids in our family were expected to go through the church's confirmation process. Of course, I never studied the weekly memorization assignment till I was walking to church the next week, and so I'd sit in the back row with sweaty palms, and then I'd have to stand up and fumble my way through the recital. After I was confirmed, I felt like I was freed up to live the way I wanted to. It was the late 60s when the sexual revolution was in full swing, and I was an eager participant. From time to time, I'd also supply liquor to high school students in the area, some of the liquor I'd steal from my dad's supply in our basement. I didn't drink it myself, but I sure made up for that later in life. After high school would let out for the summer, after my freshman, sophomore, and senior years, I moved to a boarding house in Woodstock, Illinois, where I worked on a newspaper. I learned a lot about journalism during those summers, but I also learned a lot about life. Summers in Woodstock were pretty wild. But as far as girlfriends were concerned, there was really only one I loved. Her name was Leslie, and we met when we were fourteen years old. Within a year after I left to attend the University of Missouri, Leslie moved down to Missouri to be with me. We got engaged, and then we got married. Now, Leslie wasn't as hostile towards spiritual matters as I was. For Leslie, the topic of God was largely a curiosity she'd never taken time to explore in any kind of serious way. Then one day at the end of my senior year in college, one of my professors said, Lee, I got a call from the Chicago Tribune. They want to interview you for an internship. I was stunned. Stanton Cook, the Tribune's production manager who had looked at the Arlington Bulletin when I was a kid, had become the publisher of the Tribune in the intervening years, and he had remembered my passion for journalism. He suggests the editors check me out. Well, I accepted a three-month internship, and after proving myself for six weeks, I was promoted to a full-time general assignment reporter. That's when my life really shifted into high gear. If I had a God at the time, It was my career. I was known as an aggressive and an accurate reporter, but there were times when I went over the ethical edge. When I was on the heels of a hot story and needed some documents from U.S. District Court, I would stuff the papers under my coat and steal them, which was a federal crime, so that my competitors at the Chicago Sun-Times couldn't find them. Then after my article hit the street, I'd return the papers to the file. My attitude was that ethics shouldn't get in the way of a good story. Later I became the Tribune's legal affairs editor, and I was doing what I'd always dreamed of. I really felt like I'd made it, and I wasn't even 30 years old yet. Looking back, though, I can see how I had been intoxicated by the power of the press. I mean, it was heady stuff. Being a big city newspaper man could be a real ego trip, and it stoked mine to the limit. After a while, I began to notice that I was becoming increasingly desensitized to other people. Even other people noticed my hardened heart. I remember covering a trial in which the key witness was a teenage gang member. He testified how a rival gang had lined up him and his friends and then, one by one, shot him point-blank in the head. Three of his friends died instantly, but somehow he survived. When the trial was over, I wanted to interview that witness. I thought it would make a a very dramatic feature story. The prosecutor set it up for me, and in the middle of the interview, the prosecutor pulled me aside and said angrily, Strobel, what's wrong with you? This kid watched three of his friends get blown away. He's probably going to die himself eventually from the bullet that's lodged in his head, and you're sitting here interviewing him like you're interviewing Bob Hope or somebody. His words haunted me for a long time. What was wrong with me? Why didn't I care about this kid? Why didn't I care about anything but myself and my byline and my career? The Bible has a term for it. It's called hardness of heart. By 1979, Leslie and I and our two children were living in Arlington Heights, a suburb of Chicago. Leslie became close friends with a woman named Linda Lenson. Linda was a Christian, and she began to share her faith over time with Leslie. Leslie was receptive, too, but soon Linda found herself in a quandary. She'd already explained the gospel to Leslie and tried to answer her questions as best she could. She sensed that God was working in Leslie's life, but she didn't know what to do next. Almost instinctively, though, she knew what not to do. She knew she risked doing more harm than good if she were to bring Leslie to her very traditional church. I mean, Leslie would be baffled by the Christian lingo. She'd find the music oddly outdated. The sermon was going to be intended for Christians. It probably would leave her confused. Besides, Leslie wasn't ready to worship God. She was still trying to figure out who he was. Then Linda saw a newspaper article about a different kind of church that was meeting in a theater called Willow Creek. The article called it a contemporary church trying to be relevant to people who were investigating the Christian faith. So, very nervously, Linda invited Leslie to Willow Creek. She said to her, You know, I read an article about this new kind of church that's meeting in a movie theater. Jerry and I were thinking of going to see what it's like. Do you want to come along? Well, Leslie's answer was hesitant. She said, Well, you know, I'm not sure. She was too polite to say what she was really thinking, which was, Hey, it's okay to talk about God with you, Linda, but going to church? I'm just not sure. I remember as a child, church was so intimidating. I'm not sure how to behave, how to dress, what to say, when to stand up, when to sit down, when to look up a Bible verse, or even how to do it. But Sunday rolled around, and Leslie, in the end, agreed to go. To her surprise, she ended up loving it. She came home excited, telling me about this great music, the drama, the clever multimedia. She said, even the sermon seemed to be talking our language. Well, I wasn't interested, but despite my attitude, Leslie kept going just about every Sunday. Then in September of 1979, she came up to me and said, Lee, I've decided to follow Jesus Christ. Leslie's conversion actually ended up sparking the most tumultuous era of our marriage. She kept encouraging me to try church, to go with her, but I kept resisting. Because to me, church was four things. It was boring hypocritical, money-grubbing, and totally irrelevant to my life. And yet I started to sense subtle changes in Leslie's character. I detected it in the way she related to the children. I saw it in her more loving demeanor toward me and toward other people. I watched her develop more self-confidence, more patience. Those changes and her insistence that I would love the music at Willow Creek convinced me in January of 1980 to finally venture inside that church for the first time. And I'll tell you what, I really did like the music, and I liked the multimedia, but most of all, I was captivated by the message. It was delivered by Bill Hybels in a very sincere and a, and a very conversational tone, like a friend talking to a friend. During that message, Bill asked the question, what does it take to have a transformation of the heart? And when he said that, my mind flashed back to the condition of my own heart because I recall what that prosecutor had said to me. What's wrong with you, Lee? Hybels really had my attention. He explained that because of Christ's love for us, that Christ willingly died on the cross as our substitute so he wouldn't have to pay for our own wrongdoing. For the first time in my life, the connection between the cross and my own life became clear. Hybels also issued two challenges. For those who were ready, he urged them to receive Christ's free gift of forgiveness and his leadership of their life. For those who weren't, though, he encouraged them to continue checking out the claims of Christianity. Well, I was intrigued by the message, and I was interested in the fact that he conceded that some people needed to go through a discovery process before making a decision about Christ. As I walked out of the theater that morning, I made a decision. I vowed to check out the Christian faith. I'd use my legal background and journalism training to try to separate mythology from reality and see what remained. For a person who considered himself an atheist, I embarked on my spiritual journey in an unusual way. I asked God for help. On January 20th, 1980, I prayed along these lines. I said, God, I don't even believe that you're there. But if you are, I really want to find you. I really do want to know the truth. So if you exist, please show yourself to me. That simple prayer launched me on nearly a two-year adventure that revolutionized my life. I read books. I interviewed experts. Two books, More Than a Carpenter and Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, first opened my eyes to the possibility that a person could have a faith that's intellectually defensible. As I read the Bible, I tried to set aside the issue of whether it really was the inspired Word of God. Instead, I took it for what it obviously was, a collection of ancient documents purporting to record historical events. I also read other religious